Father, we're so grateful that, that we have people all over the world that are proclaiming the Gospel and helping lives to change completely. Moving from darkness to light. From not being a people to being a people. From, from, from being uh, in the dark to a place of, of chosenness in Your kingdom, in Your family. Elected. Saved. Forgiven. And we're so thankful for the work that Ken and Etsko and their family has done these past 15 years in Japan. And our prayer, Father, in the name of Jesus, is that as they make this transition, you'll not only keep them safe as they get on that plane today and, and travel that long distance from Japan to San Antonio, Texas, but we pray until we see them tomorrow night that you will guard them, Father, and, and, and protect them on this journey. And in the coming months, Father, that You will help them to, to settle into life in, in, in this culture and in this country successfully and, and, and strongly and, 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 and with every, every resource available, Father, uh, we pray that this, that this be done in a healthy manner. And we pray, Father, that as a church, we will always be lifting them up and loving them during this re-entry phase of their life. And as we get ready to press our mind into this text that Blake read, we pray, Father, that You will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. We love our mothers and we are thankful for them. And we pray, Father, not only to, to, to make much of motherhood in this church family and in this community, but, but to be reminded this morning, Father, from Your Word of, of the things that all of us, as, as parents and as, as a, a church family that loves children should be invested in when it comes to, to transitioning each generation into deeper and deeper faith. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Forbes magazine, 2011, a couple of years ago, had an article that asked the question, how much is a mother worth? How much is a mother worth? Well, a, a website by the name of salary.com decided to take up that challenge and to figure out how much a mother should get paid. And so they thought about all of the things that a mother should do, and they broke it down into ten categories. Those categories being daycare center teacher, CEO, psychologist, cook, housekeeper, laundry machine operator, computer operator, facilities manager, janitor, van driver. Now, I'm a little shocked that they didn't have medical doctor in there as, or a wiper in general of all things uh, for a mom. But they broke it down into these ten categories, and then they tried to figure out how long a mom dedicated herself during the week each day to these things, and then what it would cost if it was outsourced. What would it cost if all of these things were done by one person in a family per year and it was outsourced? Stay-at-home moms, based on a 40-hour week plus 54.7 hours a week of overtime, a measly $112,962,000. $113,000 a year. I don't know if that includes benefits or not, but uh, vacation time. They also did it for a working mom. Moms that are working outside of the home, working 40 hours a week someplace else, and then working 40 hours at the house plus 17.9 hours of overtime. On top of what she's making with that other job, she would be paid $66,969. Not bad. Now, you would think that by now, and most do, 
that we would know the worth of motherhood. But not always. Sometimes women, and they have told me that they have felt this tension over the years, sometimes women can feel the tension of being pulled in opposite directions when it comes to a profession and a professional life and being a mother and and family life. There's a tension being pulled in two opposite directions sometimes. Uh, Many of you have heard the name Tony Campalo. Tony Campalo is a a sociologist at St. David's University in Pennsylvania. He tells the story about his wife who was a stay-at-home mom all of the years that their kids were growing up, and what would happen when she would accompany him to social events in the academic world with his profession. And she would go and and go to these dinners and go to these these symposiums, and she confided to him one day that she was beginning to feel uncomfortable as a stay-at-home mom among all of these highly educated, hard-charging, professionally successful women. And the reason was the ladies would, would ask they would kind of give their resume when they were in these conversations, and then they would ask Mrs. Campalo what she did, and she would say, I'm a stay-at-home mom, and she could see the disappointment in their eyes when she told them that she was a stay-at-home mom because in their eyes that was not something very important. It wasn't a worthwhile endeavor. Shouldn't you be doing something more important with your life? Well, between the two of them, they decided to remedy that. And they came up with an answer that every time Mrs. Kampala was asked by one of these ladies, what do you do? She gave them this answer. I am socializing two homo sapiens into the dominant values of the Judeo-Christian tradition in order that they might be instruments for the transformation of the social order into the kind of eschatological utopia God willed from the beginning of history. What do you do? (laughs) That's pretty awesome. I like that. What do you do? (laughs) I'm just changing the world. Well, on, on that note, Sheila Kissinger, some of you have read her book, Ourselves as Mothers. She writes something I think is very, very true. I just want to add to it. She writes, becoming a mother is a biological process, true. But also, she writes, a social transformation true, I would add also a spiritual and kingdom of God endeavor. Think back again to that passage that that Blake read for us just a minute ago. In verses 5 through 7, Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. He's writing to Timothy. He said, Timothy, I want you to know there's some things I I remember about you. I know you well. And even though we're not together, I've known you all your life. I remember your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. And I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Now, I don't know about you, but I would love to have uh, some of the things that Paul is writing about Timothy to, to be said and known about my own life. Notice some of the things that Timothy has going. He has a lot going for him in, in this ministry through the scope of this text. The Spirit of God doing great things in his life. Self-control, sanctification, power, self-discipline, love, all of these things. The gift of God. Some gift of God that was so evident that Paul is saying, you need to fan that into into a flame. Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, the the, the Apostle to the Gentiles, that, that, that tough, 
short, wise, completely converted, hard-going missionary to the Gentiles, taking a personal interest in his life and laying his hands on, on, Paul in, on Timothy in order for that gift from God to come to him. Something else. Paul recognizes what was happening in Timothy's life from the beginning. From the beginning. The faith of his grandmother Lois, faith of his mother Eunice, from the very beginning of his life making an impact and being used by God to make Timothy into the kind of man, along with all of the other things that God has going in Timothy's life, the faith of these two women making an impact in his life. There is an old, old book um, on, on child uh, raising children as Christians. It, it's by Andrew Murray. I have it in my library. I was reading through it. came across this, this phrase in Andrew Murray's bo- uh, book entitled, How to Raise Your Children for Christ. You may know the name Andrew Murray. He's written more and more popularly on prayer. He writes, In preparing and securing servants to do his work, God loves to begin at the very beginning. Meaning, God loves to begin at the beginning using mothers of faith to help shape and transform children into His servants. And Eunice and Lois are just, are just one example. Think about Elizabeth, the mother, the wife of Zechariah and the mother of John the Baptist over there in Luke chapter 1. As we're getting into the, Luke's accounting of the life of Jesus and how uh, Jesus was born and raised and, and, and how his ministry went leading into the book of Acts. In that very first chapter, he talks about the birth of John the Baptist. And he describes Zechariah and Elizabeth as being a descendant of Aaron. Both of them a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God. Not just in the sight of men. They were not just people that were considered to be righteous. Hey, they go to church all the time. They're, they're, they, they go to Shabbat every Saturday. But they were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees, what church? Blamelessly. Meaning, not perfectly, but that this was the core truth of their life. You have Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is favored by God because of her faith and because of her spirit to give birth to the Messiah. One from the Old Testament. Here's what King David said about his mother. You may have read this psalm a hundred times and, and like me, saw this verse for the first time this last week. Psalm 86, verse 16. Turn to me and have mercy on me. David is speaking to God. Show your strength on behalf of your servant. Save me because I serve you just as my what? Mother did. David, David is saying, you know, he is appealing to God to, to intervene into his life and to do something that, that puts David in a safe place, puts him in a secure place. He's saying, you know, God, please be faithful to me because I've been faithful to you. I serve you. And my example, and you know this, is my mother. My mother. I serve you just as my mother did. It's a true statement. I want you to write it down. It's up here on the screen. Mothers are essential to the transmission of faith from one generation to the next. Mothers are essential to the transmission of faith from one generation to the next. Now, it doesn't always happen. 
Sometimes you can pour your life into your children and sometimes the children decide that at some point in their life that this is not the direction that they want to go. But God will always use somebody of faith to transfer that faith to another person of faith and that happens in families. Moms and grandmothers, here's a a verse you might want to memorize along with your kids and to say to each other every day. And notice that even though your kids may not be at home, Paul is recognizing that it's not just it's not just Eunice, but it's also Lois, the grandmother who is involved in Timothy. It's not her child, but it is her grandchild. All mothers involved in teaching. And so here's a verse about the faith being learned. Psalm 89, verse 15. Blessed are those who have what? Learned. Let's say that together. Blessed are those who have learned. Who have Parents as as teachers, moms as teachers, grandmothers as teachers, blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence. There's some parallelism there. One of the ways that you acclaim God, worship God, is to, to walk in the light of His presence. Now, how do you do that? You know, we memorize this passage. It talks about the greatness of of learning to acclaim God and to walk in the light of His presence. How does that happen? Three quick thoughts about the presence. You enter His presence, you live in His presence, and you pass on that presence. First, enter His presence. One of the interesting little passages in the New Testament deals with the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. And the reason that it's interesting is because We know that John's baptism was a baptism for repentance and a baptism for the forgiveness of sin. That's the way that Mark chapter 1 describes it. Now, when we get to Matthew chapter 3, and Matthew is giving an account of this same event, he writes it this way, beginning in verse 13. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so so now. It is proper for us to do this. To what, church? Fulfill all righteousness. Now, many of us, we mainly think about baptism as that place, as that event, as that moment where sins are forgiven. And that is what the Gospel of Mark talks about in terms of John's baptism, that it was a baptism for repentance, a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. But baptism has to be about more than that since Jesus himself was sinless, was he not? Jesus was sinless. We read over and over again that He was tempted like us in every way, only without sin. That's in Hebrews. In the Corinthian correspondence, Paul says that He who had no sin, Jesus, was made to no sin. That's our sin in order that we might get His righteousness. He was tempted like us, only without sin. Baptism was more than just being willing to get your sins forgiven. When Peter preached that very first sermon on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it's a powerful sermon. You, you, you remember, church, how, the, how everybody in, in the, that temple area responded to, to the word that, Jesus, that, uh, that Peter preached about the Christ. And at the end of that, they realized that they were the ones that had, had crucified the Messiah, that they, the people of God, the elect people of God, had somehow missed it, and they were the very ones, along with the Romans, that had crucified Jesus, and they are cut to the heart because they recognized that He was the Messiah. And they say, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And what's the next part? For the forgiveness of your 
sins. Now that part we, we know like the back of our hand. And we ponder it and we think about it and we preach it all the time. You know, there's another portion of that that we need to think about too. It's that portion that says, be baptized in the name. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. We need to ponder more what it means to be baptized in the name of Jesus. In the ancient world, and you know this, we've, we've talked about it before and we've talked about it a lot, the name was more than just a name. It was more than just a word. It was a person. It, when, when you were baptized, and this is what Jesus is doing in His baptism, it's not that He is saying, I am sinful and I need to repent and I need to have my sins forgiven, but it's to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, when He is being baptized, He is publicly acknowledging that His will is going to be aligned to the will of God. That the kingdom of God is going to be His kingdom and the values of the kingdom of God are going to be His values. It is the same with us. We're not just being baptized for the forgiveness of our sins, but into the name of Jesus, which means that we are being baptized into a new reality. We enter His presence. As a Christian, we, we enter into a new reality. At baptism, yes, your sins are forgiven as you enter into a new reality, the reality of Christ. As a Christian, there is a new reality, a new truth. There is a new core value system. There is a new, a, a new kingdom in which you line up your values, in which you submit your will and bend your will to that king. And at the same time, as a Christian, there is someone who has entered also into your reality. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says to that church, you know, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Christ in you, you in Christ. And it's not just about entering into His presence and realizing that from that point on, your life is different. From that point on, your sins are forgiven. There's a clean conscience. Your sins have been driven from God as far as the east is from the west. He has plummeted them to the, to the bottom of the ocean where you can't see them. He's put them behind His back where they are hidden from Him. That you, you can sleep clean at night, uh, 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 deeply at night because your conscience is clean. But you have entered into a new way of thinking and living. So it's not just about entering though, but it's also about living in that presence every day. To live in His presence is to live as a disciple, which is just a gigantic challenge. It's one thing to say, you know, I'm a Christian and culturally I believe in all of the things that Christians believe in and politically I vote the way that Christians vote. It's a completely different thing to enter into Jesus' presence, into God's presence, and to live in that presence as a disciple of Jesus. It is a gigantic challenge. Many of you over the last couple of years have read... Um, uh, Eric Metaxas's uh, biography, a really good biography. In fact, I would it's probably one of the best books I've read over the last three years, the, the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In, that, uh, in the writings of Bonhoeffer, he, he, was, he, was, he was understanding probably as clearly as anybody in the late 1930s the importance of living as a disciple, not just politically being Christian or, or just uh, in, in terms of a, just a, a, a worldview being Christian, but being a disciple in, in, in Nazi Germany pre-World War II, what it meant to live as a disciple. And to integrate what you were thinking intellectually with the way that you lived ethically. And he said, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. 
Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. You know, it's so unfortunate that on Mother's Day you have to use a sports illustration. I remember uh, being um, a junior in high school when there was a kid from another state that moved into our town up there on the East Coast and, and he was going out for the wrestling team. And he was a senior, I was a junior, and he discovered that I was going to be his competition for the varsity position. We were going to be in the same weight class. And so uh, one day during my junior year, his senior year, uh, probably early November, I don't really remember, sometime in the fall, he walks up to me in, in the hallway and he's got his letterman's jacket from another school in another state and he's wearing that thing in our school and on the letter he has all of these safety pins which if you're a wrestler you know that, that those safety pins signify all of the pins, get it, pins, safety pins, all of the pins that you had gotten that scored the year before. Well, he introduced himself to me, and he said that he was going to take my position. He said he was going to take my position. Well, I was pretty intimidated. I was pretty intimidated. He was a year older, and on top of that, he was one of these guys that had started shaving when he was in junior high. And, you know, I had to shave like twice a day with his 5 o'clock shadow. And, uh, and he had all of these pins, these safety pins on his jacket. And, and so I'm pretty intimidated. I'm, man, I'm just a junior, you know, I'm kind of a little guy. And, uh, and I, you know, I should have been thinking, well, he's just a little guy too, and he's a year older. But, but you know, I'm a little bit intimidated. The, the, the day rolls around for us to have the wrestle off, and we get ready to, to wrestle for that varsity position. And he comes at me. I pick him up, and I throw him down, jump on him, and pin him. And he jumps up, and he's kind of surprised. And he says, okay, two out of three. So he comes at me again, pick him up, throw him down even faster, and pin him. And he jumps up, and he is so surprised. And he asks, how long have you been wrestling? And I, I didn't know what to say. I just said, all my life. <laughs> you know, I wrestled all my brothers. Wrestled the dog. Wrestled the trees. Wrestled the car. I mean, you wrestled, wrestled the furniture. I mean, you just, you know, all over the place. And it turned out that he had just turned, uh, gotten into the sport of wrestling like a year earlier. Now, the only reason I tell you that is to illustrate this truth that Trying is no substitute for training to be like Christ. Trying is no substitute for training to be like Christ. Spiritual transformation is not just a matter of trying harder, but it's one of training wisely and weekly and every day. And sometimes, you know, you may go the day without reading your, your Bible, or you may go a day without, without you know, remembering to pray because of, that's just the nature of life sometimes. But you know what? When you forget a meal, you know, you're working so hard during the day and you forget lunch, do you forget to ever eat lunch ever again? No, what do you do? The next meal you eat more. It's about training. It's about, it's about diligence. It's about persevering. It's, you pray. You read. You meditate. You serve. You confess. You position your life to be blessed by the Holy Spirit of God. You're training to be a disciple. And I want to say some of you are doing an incredibly wonderful job of doing something every day to further your spiritual development. And you know how I know about it even though I don't see you? It's all over Facebook. <laughs> and there's a beauty to your life and a poise and an unsinkableness in troubled times and a resoluteness to your faith that's incredible. Well, one last thing. Uh, you, you enter His presence, live in His presence every day, ladies, and, and pass on His presence. In a manner of speaking, and this is not a very good way of saying it, and, 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 uh, but it's the best I have. Uh, in a manner of speaking, we move our children from parent control to self-control to God control. From parent control to self-control, 
to God control. And that's difficult and it's often very frightening kinds of work. And our, our kids our kids do have to make a decision about their faith in God. And there's a picture in Scripture that I think is very appropriate for Mother's Day. Psalm 131, verse 2, I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. A child who is unweaned, as you know, is is restless and noisy. That child knows that the more noise it makes, someone eventually is going to appear and to feed it or to take care of it. It is about making noise and having those, those needs gratified immediately. But a child who is weaned is a child that is quiet at times. Unless you're in the Asher household growing up like I did, three gorillas. The, wee, the weaned child knows that there is more to the mother than gratification of a desire. And that child has a different kind of relationship with its mom and has a different understanding about life. It is growing in its understanding of what all life is about. And the psalmist says that when you look at this weaned child and the quietness of that child and the stillness of that child and the peacefulness of that child next to its mother, that is a metaphor for my soul. And what he is saying is that somewhere, somehow, down the road, he has learned to be calm and to be still before God. That somebody has helped him to understand that he is no longer to be at the mercy of his desires and the mercy of his, of his, of his demands and at the mercy of his instincts. And that God is not merely just the meter of his needs. And that's what we do, moms and dads and granddads and grandmoms and uncles and aunts. That's what we do. We help our children grow up and to find that peace that passes all understanding, that inexpressible joy that is there at the side of God for all of life. We'll close with one last thought. Psalm 27, verse 10. Psalm 27, one of my favorite psalms. There's a verse in there that says, Though father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. You know, we think about the love of a mother. We think about the greatness of a love of a mother. And, you know, our mothers would die for us. Our mothers would take a bullet for us. There are times when mothers went without meals. How many of you saw Kevin Durant's uh, uh, talk about winning the MVP in the NBA this year? One One of the best acceptance speeches I have ever heard. And towards the end of that, he just starts talking about his, his mother and about her love and how we were not supposed to be here where they are today. And he talked about how his, mo- his mother's love was so great that even though she was 18 when she had her first baby and two years later had him, and just the, the odds were stacked against them, that love and her sacrifice, that she made sure that they ate even though they look back now and know that she was going to bed hungry going to bed without food to make sure that they had something to eat. You think about the love of a father, love of a mother. And David says, even though as great as that love is, it still might be about forsaking you at some point. As great as that love is, it sometimes might fail. That love can fail. Fail to receive that child. But David recognizes 
that when you think about the greatness of a mother's love, the greatness of a father's love, you think about all the sacrifices that your mom has made for you to be who you are today. He says, when I think about the sacrifices that you have made to receive me, my heart is overjoyed. And we see that years down the road that when He Himself in Jesus experienced the most profound degree of forsakenness so that we never had to. And we understand that that regardless of where we are and what we do and who we may be with and wherever we go because of our connection to God, our faith in God, our, our trusting the grace that comes to us, our, our having our sins washed away, the repentance, the confessing of sins, all of that stuff in the daily knowing that every day we walk at the side of God. When we get our mind around that and we realize the profoundness of His love, it just completely changes us. I don't know where you are today. I hope that that where you are is right there beside God, like a weaned child in the quietness and the stillness of the greatness of the glory of the presence of His love and holiness. But if not, we want to share with you the opportunity to know that kind of a life. To know the kind of life where regardless of whatever kind of human love you might have experienced, the greatest of it and maybe even the worst of it, that the God of heaven never forsakes you, never leaves you, even makes the most profound sacrifice of Himself in order for you never to feel forsaken by Him. And if that describes you somehow, we're going to have our shepherds down here at the front. They would love to talk to you about how how to make that relationship right, how to make that a reality, how to enter into His presence and live in His presence, and then somewhere down the road to pass that presence on to somebody else. If that describes you this morning, come down to the front and talk to our shepherds as we stand and sing together. When we walk with the